Well, good morning, everyone. Don't you just love seeing a guest speaker come in? Guest speakers aren't always my favorite person to listen to because I know nothing about them. Uh, Hopefully, you'll know a little bit more about me after I get through uh, this message this morning. I want to let you know that I'm very grateful for the leadership in this church and the way that they have worked with me uh, and our district office through this transition. At the very front side of it, we asked God if he would send us a first-round draft pick. (laughs) Then after going month after month, when we realized God wasn't doing that, we decided to take Joel on. And (laughs) (laughs) Pastor Joel, glad you're here, brother. And uh, you know how much I respect you and regard you. You are far beyond the first-round draft pick. I'm very grateful that all three of my kids, who are now adults, have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I have two sons and one daughter. Jordan is 35, Colin is 32, and Kristen is 28. When each one of them was around 16 years old, I told them that I wanted to share with them the most important thing I would ever tell them since they had already accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. They were chomping at the bit to find out what this was. So in 2010, it was my daughter Kristen's turn. And she was so anxious because her brothers who had already heard this from dad didn't tell her what he was going to say, what I was going to say. I wanted to make it special and memorable. So we flew to Colorado for a dad-daughter date Easter weekend on 2010. I wanted to make it a very special, memorable occasion. So I built it up real much before we left. And she was so excited, more excited, almost like there were 10 Christmases coming all at the same time. We had a great time. We hiked in some mountains, beautiful scenery. We went horseback riding. We drove up through this narrow mountain pass. And then Easter morning, we attended a sunrise service at a beautiful place in the mountains called Royal Gorge. After the service, we found a quiet place on the side of this incredible mountain valley so I could tell her the most important thing I would ever tell her. She could not wait to hear it. What I told her that morning, I'm going to be sharing with you at the end of my message. (laughs) Catch the scene. Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he went with his 11 disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Many of you are very familiar with that account. Judas was not with them. Later that night, Judas shows up with a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. One of Jesus' disciples, in a sense of protective panic, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off the servant's right ear. Right in front of all these men, Jesus immediately touched the man's ear and healed him. It's absolutely amazing to me that in front of this crowd that came to arrest Jesus for claiming to be the Son of God, 
Jesus immediately touched this man's ear in front of all of them, and he sees, or they see another miracle performed. What were they thinking? Equally amazing is when Jesus asked, who is it that you want? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus said, I am he, they all withdrew and fell to the ground in fear and reverence. They see with their own eyes another miracle and fall down to the ground in fear of reverence of Jesus when his name is proclaimed, yet they still arrest him. Again, what were these people thinking? The Gospel of Matthew records that Jesus was taken before the Sanhedrin. Some of you may know that that was a Jewish ruling council. Follow along or listen along as I take you through Matthew 26, verses 59 to 60. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, the high priest, who in my opinion was very appropriately titled, he was high all right, high on pride, high on arrogance, high on his position, and high in his misunderstandings of Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. This high priest said to Jesus in Matthew 26, 63 through 67, I charge you under the oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of Almighty God and coming on clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing and said, He's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they they spit in his face. And they struck him with their fists. Jesus was bound and handed over to Pilate, the governor. In Mark 15, we read, Now it was a custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest handed him over to him. But the chief priests worked the audience. They stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Crucify him. Let's get rid of him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted even louder, crucify him, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy this crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. So here we have a New Testament terrorist, an insurrectionist, and murderer versus the perfect, sinless son of God. It bears noting that Barabbas was not in some New Testament rehab center for the crimes he had committed. He literally was on death roll. 
Yet the crowd chooses Barabbas, the terrorist, instead of Jesus. As one Bible commentary noted, the people would rather be with a well-known sinner than with the one who was sinless and could forgive their sins. Just think about that. Brothers and sisters, I know most of you are familiar with this account. But I also believe that you would agree with me that this is one of the ugliest stories in the entire Bible. Give us Barabbas, they shouted. Release Barabbas to us. And for Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. The question begs to be asked, why? It doesn't make any sense. Jesus healed a man with leprosy. He healed a centurion servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed a paralytic on a mat. He healed a woman bleeding for 12 years. He raised a dead girl to life, gave sight to the blind. People in the surrounding areas knew all about this. It had to be the talk of the town. Jesus cast out demons. He rose Lazarus from the dead. He turned water into wine. He calmed a storm. He miraculously fed 5,000 people. On another occasion, he miraculously fed 4,000 people. He walked on water and never committed a single sin. Thousands and thousands of people knew what Jesus did. Beyond all of this, Jesus encouraged people to what? To love God and love one another. He modeled before them how to do that. Barabbas, on the other hand, was in prison with the other New Testament terrorists and had committed murder. Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus or Barabbas? Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Even though many of you have heard and read this account before, right now you may be thinking as I am, and as I thought about this week in preparing this message, how could they do that? What was going on? Brothers and sisters, people today are still doing the same thing the crowd did 2,000 years ago. Instead of saying, I have sinned, many people today are saying, give me Barabbas. So what if this movie is filled with nudity and immorality? I'm going to watch it anyways. Give me Barabbas. So what if Jesus commanded us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our strength and all of our soul and all of our mind? I'm living for me and me alone. Give me Barabbas. I don't care if God commands us to forgive one another. I will never forgive so-and-so. Do you know what they did to me? I will never, ever, ever forgive them. Give me Barabbas. Every time you and I willfully choose to sin, it is a modern-day version of saying, give me Barabbas. Every single day, every one of us have choices to make regarding being truthful or telling a lie, being honest or dishonest, choosing which movies to watch to entertain ourselves, things to look at on the internet when no one else is around, whether or not we choose to gossip or slander, and on and on and on and on it goes. And in our modern day lives, we are dealing with the same thing here. It's either give me Jesus or give me Barabbas. 
Christians love to say, I know I shouldn't say this, but. I preached a but sermon one time. <laughs> that was the title of my sermon, but. I know I shouldn't be saying this, but. But does not make it all right in the eyes of God. When are we going to realize that and get over that? Every pastor I have talked with or every governing board I have met with discusses the best methodologies for reaching out to spiritually lost people. While a number of them typically land on preferred methods of outreach, there is oftentimes one important fact that is overlooked. One of the biggest turnoffs to non-believers is not our Christian doctrine. It's not even our outreach methodology as much as it is professing believers who do not live their theology. The community is watching. They know the name of our church here. Is it Arise Church or is it Give Me Barabbas Alliance Church? Some people are saying that the biggest challenge facing ministry today is COVID. Is that a challenge? Yes. Is it the biggest challenge? I'm not so sure. Others are saying, no, it's the homosexual transgender issue. Yes, that's an issue. Is it the biggest one? I don't think so. Others say, no, it's materialism. Others will say, no, it's theological differences. I contend that one of the biggest challenges facing ministry today is pastors, missionaries, and professing lay people who are not living their theology consistently. Granted, no one is looking for Christ followers to live perfect lives, but they are expecting Christ followers to have some level of spiritual integrity and spiritual consistency. A.W. Tozer said this, where does Christianity destroy itself in a given generation? It destroys itself by not living in the light. By professing a truth, it does not obey. My own father died as a non-believer because he never recovered from decades of watching his co-workers go to church on Sundays but live out the world's values the rest of the week. Both of my brothers have rejected Christianity to this point for the very same reason. I pastored a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the mid-90s. That was during the time when the WWJD wristbands were very popular. Do you remember them? What would Jesus do? They actually were created and produced in West Michigan. And it was common to have different colored wristbands. I don't know if any of you did that to make a fashion statement, but my wife Jody and I, yeah, we had a green one if I had a Green Bay Packers shirt on, or we had this color if I had that on. I had a man in my church actually admit to me that he would literally take off his what would Jesus do wristband before he would plan to commit a sin. <laughs> what do you do with that? <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, what are, you, what are you trying to say to me here? He might as well have had a GMB, give me Barabbas wristband. 
please do not understand what I am saying. I am not saying or implying that we earn our salvation by doing good works. We know Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, it's crystal clear about this. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that no person can boast. The only way to receive eternal life is by accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. There is no add-ons. It's Jesus alone, Jesus only. Amen. Yet having done that, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you obey my commands. Think about that next time you're grappling with a sin. If we love Jesus, we'll obey his commands. Can we do it perfectly? No. But should we do it consistently? Yes. Here's a classic addition a classic, a biblical distinction between give me Jesus and give me Barabbas. Use this. Remember these two verses I'm going to give you. They're easy to remember. Use this as a test in your own life. Philippians 1.21 and Philippians 2.21. Philippians 1.21 says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all about Jesus. Philippians 2.21 says, Everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Family. Make Philippians 1.21 and 2.21 verses that you're well familiar with. Because when we get out of Philippians 1.21, which says, to live is Christ, to die is gain, we find ourselves in Philippians 2.21 where we're looking out for our own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Philippians 2.21 is saying, give me Barabbas. I choose Barabbas. There are thousands of negative outcomes from professing believers tilting toward a give me Barabbas lifestyle. Let me share with you uh, one of them. The American Family Association Journal has noted that a huge amount of young people have an accepting attitude toward pornography. Excuse me. It has become such a common event that when we go through licensing interviews as a denomination, we no longer ask anybody from any college, Christian or secular, do you have a pornography issue? We don't ask that anymore. We ask them, how bad is it? How bad is it? It has gotten to that point. In fact, you'll find that people in the younger generation feel that it's worse to not recycle than it is to look at those magazines or however they want to um, view it. I'm trying to be careful here with kids in the audience. Well... Here I was, 
2010 Easter morning, sitting on a Colorado mountain bluff with my then 16-year-old daughter, Kristen, ready to share with her the most important thing I would ever tell her. And here's what I shared with her. And here's what I share with you. I said, Kristen, since you've already accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is the most important thing I will ever say to you. Be absolutely 100% committed to Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Kristen, this verse means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Kristen, you grieve the Holy Spirit when you say yes to sin. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. You quench the Holy Spirit when he's prompting you to do something and you say no. I said, Kristen, I love you as your dad so much. I beg you, do not say yes to sin and do not say no to God's leading in your life. Kristen is not a perfect daughter, which makes it a heck of a lot easier for me because I'm not a perfect dad. But I have watched as a primary goal and motivation of her life has been to love and honor God. Amen. One of the ways to accomplish this is to regularly worship God. I have noted as I've gone from church to church that some believers today have developed the idea that worship is something that we attend versus something that we do. Don't fall into that trap that worship belongs only to Sunday morning. Worship actually energizes everything else we do as God's people. A colleague of mine once said, worship is where we reset our spiritual compass and find out where true north is. Think about this. Think about heaven with me for a moment. Do you realize that evangelism ends in heaven? Have you ever thought about the fact that discipleship ends in heaven? But worship continues for all of eternity. An attitude of worship helps us safeguard ourselves from a give me Barabbas lifestyle. In closing, please do everything you can to avoid being a lukewarm believer. A lukewarm person says, I believe the Bible is true, but they're not changed by it. A lukewarm believer sits in church and says, yes, pastor, that was a good point. I sure hope so-and-so was listening to that this morning. A lukewarm Christian sees how God's word is to change other people, but they don't see how it is to change their own life. A number of years ago, Dallas Willard wrote The Great Omission. In this book, he made a reference to what he called a vampire Christian. Have you ever heard that phrase before, a vampire Christian? That is a professing believer who, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, but I don't care to be your disciple or to have your character.
In fact, excuse me while I get on with my life. I'll see you in heaven. That's why I took my 16-year-old daughter, Kristen, to Colorado. And that's why Jordan and Colin, her brothers, had a Colorado trip with Dad to cover the same topic years earlier, to tell her the most important thing I would ever say to her. Kristen, be absolutely committed to Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Again, that verse means being influenced by the Holy Spirit. Do not say yes to sin. Do not say no to God's leading in your life, period. There's nothing to debate with God over this. No to sin, yes to God's leading. How many professing believer hearts is Jesus looking into all across the globe this morning saying, let me in. Let me in. That's why I told all three of my then teenage kids the most important thing I would ever say to them. And now I tell you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the most important thing I will ever say to you. Ephesians 5.18, we've already looked at that, says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, our lives are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. I saw a sign in northern Wisconsin a couple of years ago that sums it up well. It says, your life may be the only Bible someone reads. So wear it well. Wear it well. Brothers and sisters, um, I would really ask you as your brother in Christ to regularly ask God, I've already touched on this, to regularly ask God to have the smallest sin in your life bother you in the biggest way so it wouldn't take root. I literally beg God every day. This isn't one of those Christian, oh yeah, I do it every day, but it's usually like twice a month. No, this is every day. I beg God, the smallest sin bother me in the biggest way, Lord Jesus, please. I want you to be honored. I want you to be glorified. I want this all for you. So where do we go as a congregation right now with all this? Well, let's, let's go back a number of months when I met with the search committee and we had a time of prayer and I told them that my goal, under the leading of Jesus, was to find you a first-round draft pick couple that God would send here. God answered that prayer Amen. in an unbelievable fashion. I mean, if we could just kind of use an earthly expression, I mean, like, who'd have thunk it, right? I mean, we know there's a lot of great candidates out there. I, do, I know that because I'm placing them all the time. But God laid on our pastor's heart and his dear wife's heart that this is where he wanted them to come. Amen. And they couldn't be happier 
because there's no better place on the planet than where? In the will of God. Yes, that's worth, that's worth applause. Well, we have a time to officially install him, as long as you are okay with that. And his wonderful wife. And what an amazing church office he has. I saw it for the first time this morning. I said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. I had to put my name in for this place. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have these cards? And I'd like to ask Pastor Joel to come up, please. And you can bring your beautiful wife if you'd like. Pastor Joel, this is a service of personal dedication to your call. Do you sincerely believe that you have been led by the Spirit of God to assume the responsibilities of senior pastor and wife at Arise Church? In humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit, will you make it your aim to give unreservedly to the work of God in this office? Yes, absolutely. Realizing you're responsible to God to be faithful to your call, will you earnestly seek to carry forward your ministry in humility, sincerity, and love? Yes, I will. Do you, the congregation, affirm Pastor Joel's leadership along with his wife, Becca? Do you pledge your support and prayer to him and for her in the ministry at Arise Church? Thank you. Then could you all stand? Tradition has it in the Christian Missionary Alliance that the district superintendent prays now and or we have elders come forward and pray now. But this is the third installation I've had in the last three months, and I've changed it up, and it's gone really well. So keep it going, okay? But what I would like all of us to do right now, all of us, if you're feeling comfortable, you can reach out your hand toward this couple, uh, and I want all of us to pray out loud all at the same time. Are you ready for that? So, and let's pray nice and loud so this couple can hear your prayers and God will honor those prayers. So let's pray together. Out loud, please. As a choir. Thank you, Lord, for this couple. Thank you, Lord, for bringing them here. Thank you, Lord, for all that you did in getting them to come here. Lord, may he stay sensitive to sin sensitive to your promptings. May they do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine for your glory and for your honor. Thank you for sending them here, Lord. And all of God's people said, let me introduce to you your senior pastor and wife, Joel and Becca. (laughs) 